6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 22 and 23. Now we're in the book of Jeremiah. Here we're in chapter 22. And as I think I've indicated many times, these chapters are not really in chronological order. So it's a little tricky to try to keep a historical context uh, going for us here. Um, now we're going to, we've been, uh, in this general section where uh, Jeremiah has a number of, uh, of his uh, collect- collected um, uh, presentations. And these happen to be going through the kings, of, uh, particularly. And uh, to put, the, and we're going to get into Zedekiah in chapter 22 here in a minute. But let me just review a little bit. At the risk of sounding a little tedious, let me just remind you that um, there was, of course, Josiah, the good king, and, and subsequent to him, there's a whole stream of kings. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a general of the army, uh, defeated Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Karshemesh which caused the Babylonian forces to be dominant in that, in that part of the world. His, that, the Battle of Karshemesh, approximately 606 B.C., is probably one of the most important battles in, the his, in recorded human history because it turns the tide. It turns the tide for Babylon to be the primary power. It also leads to a whole era that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. Most of you may not realize why I keep emphasizing that, but it's, there's going to, I'm going to um, share with you some possibilities about chron- chronology, prophetic chron- chronology that emerges out of Nebuchadnezzar's sieges. And uh, that's, I'm, I'm going to do that later in the book, but I think we'll have some fun stuff because to the best of my knowledge, it's unpublished, and at the same time, it's, it's kind of fun stuff. So we'll be getting into that. But Nebuchadnezzar uh, defeats Pharaoh Necho, Baba Karshemesh, and his, his troops... Um, Lays siege to Jerusalem, and he heads into Egypt to take some spoil. But he finds out that his dad, Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, has died, so he heads back to Babylon by a shortcut to take the throne. He's now the king of Babylon, and his army's bringing spoil, taking another route, but that's a very key time. And he sets up Jehoiakim, um, so this is 2 Kings 24, uh, as a vassal king to him, and uh, he subsequently rebels, and he gets put down and carried off to Babylon. So Jehoiakim we've uh, talked a lot about uh, in, in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, he is succeeded by Jehoiachin, C-H rather than Jehoiachin, who also has the name Jeconiah. He's going to pr- figure very prominently before the end of this chapter. So Jeconiah is somebody you want to, or Jehoiachin uh, is going to be very important to you and I. He also subsequently rebels and gets carried away captive along with 10,000 others, including Ezekiel and some others. And he is replaced by his uncle. Nebuchadnezzar has had enough of all of this, so he replaces uh, 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 Jehoiachin's uh, uncle, uh, whose name is Mataniah. But he changes his name from Mataniah, which means the gift of Yah, to Zedekiah, which means the justice of Yah. 
And uh, but anyway, Zedekiah, his, his name has changed. He's put on the throne when he's about 21 years old. Reigns about seven years. He's an evil guy. Second uh, Kings 24 uh, makes that quite clear. He's sort of friendly to Jeremiah, but his first string is uh, very. He's very weak himself, and his first string is anti-Jeremiah. So Jeremiah suffers badly under Zedekiah, not because Zedekiah is evil, but because Zedekiah is weak, and and uh, 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 his his second string uh, uh, rough up by Jeremiah pretty badly. And of course, uh, Zedekiah turns from bad to worse, and, and and Nebuchadnezzar lays another siege, lasts over a year. Much happens that we'll be talking about. There are three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar, the first, the second, and the third, and we're going to talk much about that, but I want to set the chronology of that for a very special session as we get later in the book. But we have, I think, some surprises to reveal there. Um, Chapters 22 and 23 are linked not by chronology. We're going to just go right over this chronology. The, chron- won't be really, the chronology is not the issue, but rather by themes, and specifically they're oriented to kings. Chapter 22 is going to carry us through uh, the blood curse on Jeconiah. It's very, very interesting technicality that we're going to encounter in the book of Jeremiah that I think you'll find uh, very exciting. It has some very, very um, exciting implications for you and I. Uh, buried in the technicalities of the Old Testament are some real gems, and we're going to encounter one of those in this chapter. And chapter 23 is going to focus on the Mashiach, the Messiah. And that's going to, I would not describe Jeremiah as a messianic prophet like does Isaiah and others, but we do encounter some pretty exciting messianic issues here, and uh, we'll be getting into that. So uh, probably the best way to do this is just to jump right in. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sitteth upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that enter in by these gates. And on it goes. We'll get into that. But I want you to notice right up front, yes, he's talking to the king of Judah, but the emphasis is on the throne of David. The throne of David is going to end before this chapter is over. And that becomes a shock to you. Because the throne of David, I thought, is perpetual. There's a big future for it. Well, we've got a little problem before the chapter ends because we're going to, not Zedekiah, but rather Jeconiah is the last of the line of Judah, the last of the Solomonic line. And uh, that's going to be very strange. It has some very strange consequences that fortunately have a surprise ending for you and I. But here already in chapter 22, we have this undertone, if you're familiar with the the Holy Spirit, how he uses puns and subtleties and style. We can tell there's more going on here than just his message to Zedekiah. But let's keep moving. He's talking about the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people and so forth. Verse 3, Thus saith the Lord, Execute justice and righteousness and deliver this spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor. And do no wrong, do no violence to the sojourner, that is a stranger, the fatherless or the widow, neither shed innocent blood, in this place. For if ye do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house kings sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. But if ye will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Strange comment. 
Now, the Lord swearing by himself is something we've encountered frequently in the Scripture. Why does he swear by himself? Because there's nothing higher to swear by. But what's he swearing? Is that if they don't perform righteousness and justice from their throne, this house, which house? The house of David. Will be a desolation. you got to be kidding. I thought the Mashiach of Israel, the Messiah, is going to sit on the throne of David. The Lord here is threatening that if they don't get their act together, it's over. The house, the lineage. Very, very strange, especially as you read it in the chapter, because they don't do his word, and he does curse the line. Very bizarre chapter. Now, we could also depart from this right now and, and, and notice the emphasis on righteousness and justice. We've talked several times, I believe, that our study of the book of Jeremiah is at least in two, in, in, has two dimensions to it. There's, of course, the historical dimension. There was a Jeremiah, there was a Judah that was sinning, that did go into captivity, as God predicted. He was a real person with real messages to real people. There is a historical, literal Jeremiah. There's a second level, and that's personal. Some of the admonitions that he gives these people about what they should and should not do and what the relationship to the Lord should be are, are ad admonitions you and I can apply to our lives. There's the personal, sometimes called the homiletic application of the book. And that's perhaps for you and I the most valuable application. Yes, we're interested in Israel's history. Yes, we're interested in mastering the Old Testament. If for no other reason that we understand the book of Revelation better. But um, this idea of personally applying these insights to ourselves is the practical value. There's a third level, and we've talked about that lightly from time to time, and that is that as Jeremiah was presiding over the death of a nation, a nation that was called to God's service, but that turned from God to their own ways and became ultimately judged by God. In fact, he used their enemies as a mechanism of judgment. Just as Jeremiah, in tears and in pain, presided over the death of his nation, in a sense, so likewise, we might. Those of you that take Business Week this week may have noticed the article, Can America Compete? There's a good statistical summary that should call our nation to awareness that we've got very, very fundamental, serious predicaments. And that just tells one dimension of it, obviously. The military dimension's another. It deals with productivity. There's a financial dimension of our nation. But most of all, Anyone can look around. There's a moral dimension to our nation. And I'm not just talking about AIDS and all of that. That's bad enough. I'm talking about the absence of righteousness in our land, that the, uh, the criminals have more rights than the victims, the inability of our courts to administer justice, the inability of the frustration of the law enforcement officials who, uh, who uh, risk their lives to bring someone to arraignment, only to find that the issue before the bar of justice is not the guilt or innocence of the accused, but rather the technicalities under which he was arrested. In the British courts, those issues are important, but they're secondary to the guilt or innocence of the accused. In the United States, the other way around. We spend more effort on the technicalities, less on the guilt or innocence of the accused. So it's a very strange inversion in our jurisprudence that's tragic. Now, when we read this passage particularly, we notice the Lord emphasizing, at least in this passage, not the idol worship and some of these other problems, just justice. He's telling the leadership, administer justice from your thrones. If you don't, there's going to be much to pay. And how tragic it is is we cannot characterize our courts anymore as being courts of justice. 
the courts of law, not courts of justice, and there's a difference. So anyway, he says, if you do these things, great, there shall enter in by the gates of this house kings sitting upon the throne of David, and so on. If you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, say the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation, and indeed it did. Indeed it did. The land was desolate. Jerusalem was desolate. And that's the Babylonian captivity, but it's even more than that. We're going to find some amazing surprises before the end of this chapter. Let's move on. Verse 6. For thus saith the Lord unto the king's house of Judah, thou art Gilead unto me, and, and the head of Lebanon. These are good words. These are positive. You know, there's their bomb in Gilead, and Lebanon was the, uh, you know, both these are, are uh, poetically and rhetorically positive words in their vocabulary. Yet surely I will make thee a wilderness and cities which are not inhabited. Verse 7, I will prepare destroyers against thee, every one with his weapons, and they shall cut down thy choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations shall pass by this city, and they shall say, every man to his neighbor, Why hath the Lord done this unto this great city? Then shall they answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worshipped other gods, and served them. Very interesting. I can remember one evening some years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of being in the home of Pat Boone when he had a group together to hear a famous, a then famous author by the name of Art Katz, who had published a best-selling book called Ben Israel. And Arthur Katz was an extremely articulate intellectual Jew who was famous as a professor at Berkeley. He was a Marxist. He was an existentialist. He went through it all and decided they were all bankrupt and went on a sojourn, an odyssey around the world. And while traveling through Europe and ultimately in Israel, he came to the discovery that none other than Jesus Christ was the Mashiach of Israel. And he published a book of his odyssey called Ben Israel, and it's his own, I won't go through his whole testimony, but because of the impact of that book, we had the opportunity to hear his testimony and his presentation at this home one evening which was filled with people from Beverly Hills and the entertainment industry and so forth. And it was very interesting, as he finished an hour summary of his book and his testimony, there was an old man sitting in the front row who raised his hand. And he said uh, he was very impressed with Art Cat's presentation, but he was very, gradually as he spoke, became more and more trembling. He says, I was a young boy in uh, Nazi Germany, and I heard my parents being dragged to the gas chambers. And the only reason I didn't is they needed me to polish the shoes. He says, where was our God then? And as he talked about all of this, and, and he was obviously a very uh, antagonistic because he felt that God had abandoned his people and he used the Holocaust in Germany as the example which he personally experienced. And of course, as he said all of this, it was quite, we all touched and wondered, okay, Art, how are you going to handle that one? You know. And Art uh, uh, turned to him and spoke to him quoting in Hebrew from the Old Testament. The first voice is he glad he pointed that. You could likewise add, where was our God? In Jerusalem in 70 AD, when a million six, over a million six of our people were slaughtered by the Roman legions under Titus Vespasian. Where were our people? And he went through the Babylonian thing. And then he goes back in the Torah, out of Deuteronomy, and quotes in Hebrew how this was all forecast. And I believe he used passages from Jeremiah too, as I recall pointing out that this was all exactly what the Bible forecast. And so 
that was kind of exciting. We had a number of things like that. And as, as Art again and again showed them, uh, and typically because there's a large Beverly Hills Jewish community, uh, constituency there, uh, he went through and quoted from the Old Testament entirely. His whole presentation of the Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was from the Old Testament, then in Hebrew. What was really exciting is when finally near the late, later in the evening, one of the rabbis from Beverly Hills raised his hand and pointed out that he has for many years been convinced that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel. And that got the evening really rolling. <laughs> and uh, we had to leave about two or three in the morning because we had to get back here to Orange County. And we heard from some that did stay later uh, that there were several baptisms in Pat's pool. It was a very, very exciting evening. And so there's a lot going on. In, in, and it's interesting how in Judaism, uh, there are those, sometimes very undercover, who who recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they do so from his fulfillment of the prophecies of this very thing, their persecutions, their diaspora, and so on. And so that's very exciting, and uh, it would exceed the scope of this evening's thing to digress here, but indeed, the nations will be amazed at the the judgment on Israel, and they will answer, verse 9, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. Now we're going to verse 10. Weep not for the dead, neither bemoan him, but weep bitterly for him that goeth away. For he shall return no more, nor see his native country. Jeremiah is focusing on those that are going to be exiled, those that are going to be taken into slavery. How long are they going to be in slavery in Babylon? Seventy years. A remnant will return, their offspring typically. But uh, for most of the part, they will they will not see their land anymore, and they're the lucky ones we're going to see before it's over. We're going to see in a couple of chapters here about the fig trees, good figs, good figs and bad figs. The good figs are the ones that have the benefit of going into slavery, because they're doing what the Lord has ordained. The bad figs are the ones that have fought it, and they're going to get decimated and left uh, desolate in the land, and uh, they're the they're the unlucky ones. Interestingly enough, verse 11, For thus saith the Lord, touching Shalom, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. Now, that's another, Shalom is another name for Jehoahaz. You get this in First Chronicles 3 and elsewhere. It's interesting here that um, we do not have any mention as we go through these kings of Josiah. We're dealing only with the bad kings. Josiah has been killed at the Battle of Megiddo at 609 B.C., some substantial years before. Shalom here, a pre-regnal name of Jeho Jeho Jehoahaz. It's a private kind of name. He's the one that's elevated after the death of his father, as we see in First Chronicles chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, he displeased Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, which at the time he was ascending was still powerful. This is prior to Nebuchadnezzar's success. And so uh, Pharaoh Necho, uh, in three months, deposed him and ex exiled him to Egypt. And it was his older brother, Eliakim, who Necho changes his name to Jehoiakim and puts him in, on, on his throne. Jehoahaz is not a big deal. He's 90 days, and he's also deposed by the Egyptian king before some of the stuff gets really rough uh, a little later. But uh, uh, anyway, it says that um, he reigned instead of Josiah, his father, who went forth out of his place, and he shall not return there anymore. But he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and he shall see this land no more. That's just a prophecy of uh, Jehoahaz, or Shalom, who, is, who dies in Egypt. But now we get to Jehoiakim, which is the one that Pharaoh Necho puts in his place, and we have much to say about him from verse 13 through 19. So um, let's say, verse 13, Woe unto him who buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, 
who useth his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not for his work. Now, uh, who saith, I will build myself a wide house and large chambers and cutteth out windows, and it is paneled with cedar and painted with vermilion. The point here is he's using forced labor without wages, and that was prohibited by the law of Moses. Okay? And you can find that in Leviticus 19, verse 13. You can find that in Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15, for those of you that want to chase that down. Jehoiakim uh, is essentially emulating Manasseh. Manasseh was the bad guy that we've read about several times in First Kings, uh, or correct, in Second Kings 24. He's the guy that is at least by tradition credited with having Saul and Isaiah in half. Neat guy. And so uh, Jehoiakim is emulating him, who also used forced labor to build his own house, which was, which you know, kings are entitled to do. You know, they have some leverage on the economics, you know. But they are not entitled under the law of Moses to use forced labor without wages. That was uh, uh, prohibited, and so that's what's being—that's the indictment that appears here. Shalt thou reign, verse fifteen, because thou closet thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness, and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and needy; then it was well with him. Was not this to know me? Saith the Lord. He's referring to Josiah. Josiah also had a nice house. He did okay. But he put first ruling the land properly with justice and so forth and knowing the Lord. But he managed all right. That's what the Lord is saying. You're not a king because you live in a house of cedar. You live in a house of cedar because you're king. Be king first. And what he means by that, judge you know, justly and, and uh, uh, with righteousness and um, judges of either the cause of the poor and the needy and so forth. And the rest of this will follow. That's really the, the tone behind this language here. Verse 17, But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for shedding innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's as expressive as you can get, King James translation or not. Um, the donkey's burial. You don't mourn for him. Donkey's burial, which means he was just cut up and left for the beasts and the birds. Then you can chase that in Second Chronicles 35 and so forth if you want to go into all that. But now we're at verse 20. And now we're going to deal with a guy by the name of Jehoiah Chin. Different guy. Jehoiah Chin. Who has another name also called Jeconiah. Jeconiah. And only in this chapter is you'll find the word Coniah, because the J-E, the reference to God in his name, is dropped from the name. You just have the word Coniah, so don't be confused. Without, without some background, you would not pick this up. But Coniah in this chapter refers to Jeconiah, which is another name for Jehoiachin. And a very interesting thing is described here that is not only prophetic, but creates a very, very interesting uh, situation here. Verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up thy voice in Bashan and cry out from the passes for all thy lovers are destroyed. I spoke unto thee in the prosperity, but thou sayest I will not hear. 
This hath been thy manner from thy youth, that thou obeyest not my voice. The wind shall eat up all thy shepherds, and thy lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then shalt thou be ashamed and confounded for all thy wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, who makest thy nest in the cedars, how gracious shalt thou be when pangs come upon thee, the pain as of a woman in travail. Now, that's poetic language, of course, but leading up to something here, but how fascinating it is how God's judgments upon Jerusalem or Israel or Judah are always described through the idiom of a woman in travail. None other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uses that very expression in Matthew 24, the famous Olivet Discourse, which we reviewed when we were going through Matthew recently. Okay, when we get to verse 24 to the end of this chapter, I recommend you mark it, because I think you're going to find this, a passage of some substantial interest to you. Um, The trick will be to focus on really just the essential history, because there's so much here. As I say, we're going to encounter the word Koniah, the J, Jeconiah, the J is removed. It only appears here and in Jeremiah 22, twice, and in Jeremiah 37. It's It's a name that the Holy Spirit has reserved for his use in Jeremiah for some special reasons, but you and I, to understand who he's talking about, it's an alternate for Jeconiah, which means the Lord will establish. And the word Lord is removed from his name by calling him a Kaniah. And Jehiachin is the way we know him as his throne name throughout the rest of Scripture. And he was the son and successor to Jehiakim, the one we just read about. Um, he was This guy is exiled in 597 B.C. We'll find, you can find his background in 2 Kings 24 and 25. He only reigned, actually, three months, and then he was put, carried off to Babylon uh, in the judgment, and he's there 37 years. So this guy doesn't die right away. You might be interested archaeologically. He is mentioned in the Widner tablets unearthed in, uh, at the Ishtar gate of Babylon. Ishtar is one of the gods they worshipped and a name after which we have a holiday. So if you want to play Easter Bunny and uh, egg rolls, you're giving acknowledgement to, the, to uh, one of the gods of which there was a gate named in Babylon, Ishtar. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.